Would you turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 1? Exodus chapter 1. Today we're starting a new sermon series on the book of Exodus. And before we start, I think it's probably a good idea to explain some of my rationale, some of why we're going to do this. Exodus is a, is a long book. It's going to take us some time to go through it. But that's okay. You know, we, we have time. We, we can do this. Um, but I do, want to, I do want you to understand where I'm coming from on this and, and why we want to do this. So here's just, just three reasons, things to keep in mind, for why we're studying Exodus. First, Exodus is a, is a foundational book for understanding the New Testament. Moses, who's probably the main character of Exodus, gets mentioned in, explicitly in 12 of the 27 books in the New Testament, in addition to some other places where the story of Exodus comes out. The story of Moses, the story of Exodus is really important in books like 1 and 2 Corinthians, is really important in Hebrews. And to understand those books, we need to have a foundation in Exodus. It's also key to understanding a lot of what Jesus is doing in the Gospels. And as we read Luke side by side with Exodus, you'll be able to see some of that. Second, a lot of Christians really struggle to understand the Old Testament well. They, they struggle to have to, with how to read these stories Particularly with, with how to read these laws, these things that don't really seem to apply to us. And a lot of times the default is to get stuck on moral teaching. You know, you've probably heard the, the song Dare to Be a Daniel, that sort of thing. Where we're just kind of following their examples, which that's, that's part of what's going on in the Old Testament. But there's, there's deeper truth that we want to get to. The, the hero of the story of Exodus is not Moses. It's not Aaron. The hero of the story is Jesus. That's what in, in Luke, he actually, on the road to Emmaus, he talks about how Moses and the prophets revealed him. So we're going to see that as we study this book. Third, uh, there's what I, I like to call the Romans 11 principle. Uh, Paul tells us in Romans 11, and this is, I, I can talk at length about this, but Paul tells us in Romans 11 that unbelieving Jews were cut off from the olive branch that Gentiles might be brought in. Now, what that means is there's a continuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament. These stories belong to us. We are the children of Abraham by faith. That's Romans 4.16. And since we are the children of Abraham by faith, these stories are our stories. They belong to us. The church is the new Israel. And so as the true heirs of Abraham, as the faithful heirs of Abraham, we ought to understand how these stories fit into our family heritage. We ought to know our family history in Christ. And so our goal in studying Exodus is going to be threefold. We want to understand the New Testament better. We want to read the Old Testament better and read it in light of Jesus. And we want to know our covenant heritage as the people of God. So my prayer is that all those things will become clear as we do this. So as we begin, let's, let's pray and we'll turn to the text. Father, you are good. And you have called us as a people in continuity with those who have gone before. You've called us to be the children of Abraham by faith. And so, Father, we come to you this morning asking that you would bless us as we read these stories. Pour out your Holy Spirit on us. Enlighten us and show us Jesus Christ. Show us the Messiah who came for our salvation in the book of Exodus. 
Father, would you use these words to sanctify us and would you use them ultimately so that you would be glorified in our lives. Impress the truths of this passage onto our hearts and change our hearts. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Exodus chapter 1. Hear God's word. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and multiplied and increased greatly and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. The Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service and mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field and all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Puah. He said, when you serve as a midwife to the Hebrew women, and see them on the birth stool. If it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this? And let the male children live. The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, they are vigorous. They give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. Because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Amen. Whenever you read the Bible, context is key. And so a lot of times when we think of Exodus, we immediately start thinking about Moses. And I think that's good. Moses is certainly the most important man in the whole book, in addition to being the author of the book. But in chapter 1, there's no mention of Moses. There's no mention of his parents. There's no mention of of anything to do with a coming exodus. People are still in the land. This is a context-setting chapter. Chapter 1 frames and gives us clarity for the rest of the book. And in this case, the context that, it, that this story is happening in is cosmic. It's universal. We're talking about spiritual warfare. And I'm not exaggerating about that. 
normally, I, I don't normally think too much about sermon titles, but I did, I did title this sermon, New Creation, Same Serpent. New Creation, Same Serpent, because that's what we're dealing with. Exodus is not primarily a battle between Moses and Pharaoh. It's a battle between God and the devil. It's not just a battle for one people group. It's a battle for all people. It's not just a battle for a piece of land in the Middle East. It's a battle for the whole universe. Now, if that's overwhelming, that's okay. We're about to take a big bite today. But next week, we'll be able to zoom in on Moses' life and see how this plays out in more detail. So today, I want you to take the big bite with me. And over the next several weeks, we're going to have time to to chew on it. We're going to have time to process it. And we're we're hopefully going to get all the, the marrow out of this that we can. So today... God calls his people into a new creation to battle the old serpent. God calls his people into a new creation to battle the old serpent. We're going to look at that in two parts. First, God calls his people into a new creation. Let's start in verse 1. It says, These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. And Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation. Now, there are, there are a few things to notice immediately about this passage. First, who comes down into Egypt? We get a list of the 12 sons of Jacob, who were the patriarchs of the 12 tribes of Israel. But in addition to these 12 We also get this interesting little comment. It says, all the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Now, from now on, when you see these two numbers, I want alarm bells ringing in your head. When you see 12 and 70, particularly if they're together, those are are big numbers. They're symbolic numbers. We actually get them multiple times in Exodus. So there are 12 patriarchs and 70 descendants. To give you just a little bit of context for this, in Genesis 10... There are 70 nations descending from Noah. Later on in Exodus, Moses will appoint 70 elders. Many of the later kings and judges in in all of those books, in the historical books, will have 70 sons. 70 years is the length of several judgments of the prophets. And notably, maybe this is the most important, in addition to the 12 apostles, Jesus also sends out 70 disciples 70 preachers to go spread the gospel of the kingdom during his earthly ministry. So you see, in the Bible, 70 is a number of completeness. If seven is a number of perfection, then 70 is perfection multiplied 10 times. And most importantly for our purposes, 70 throughout the Bible represents all the nations of the earth. There are 70 nations descended from Noah. So these 12 patriarchs and their 70 descendants represent a new world, a new creation, a new kingdom coming down from Canaan into Egypt. It's a new creation. And Moses actually doubles down on this in verse 7. It says "But the people of Israel were, and you can count these words with me, fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong. So that the land was filled with them. So there's seven words there, seven descriptions of their fruitfulness, of their multiplication. And it's Genesis language. 
Remember the charge given to Adam and Eve and later to Noah? God says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth or land, it's the same word, and subdue it. So Israel is fulfilling this command. They're obeying this, what we call the creation mandate. But there's one small caveat. Notice what's missing. Adam and Eve are called to be fruitful, multiply, and fill the land, and subdue it. So Israel has done the multiplying part. They've done the filling part, but they haven't yet subdued the land. And that's where our next character gets introduced. Look at verse 8. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply, and if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. So, so what's the concern of this new king? What's the concern of Pharaoh? It's that he's about to be subdued. Now, let's pay attention to how the king, the Pharaoh, is characterized. First, it says that he did not know Joseph. Now, this isn't primarily about ignorance. It's certainly possible that Pharaoh didn't have all the details of the story. But you have this whole people group who are in your land. They've only been there for a couple hundred years. He would have known, at least in broad strokes, why they were there. Because, you see, in the Bible, knowledge is not just an awareness of facts. Knowledge is about intimacy. To know someone is to be in close connection with them or to even be in covenant with them. So in all likelihood, the the king's lack of knowledge is willful. He is willfully saying, I don't know them. They don't belong anymore. I disown them. He's intentionally forgotten Joseph, just as Joseph was forgotten in prison at the end of Genesis. And this verse contrasts with God's knowledge of Israel, which we'll get to in the coming weeks. But when Pharaoh does this, when he forgets Joseph, when he puts away that knowledge of Joseph, he makes himself an enemy of God's people. And in fact, he starts to look and act a lot like the serpent in the garden. Remember that the serpent was a crafty beast, a shrewd beast. And now Pharaoh seeks to deal shrewdly with Israel. So all of a sudden, we're in Genesis 3 again. God has given this charge to be fruitful to have dominion over the land. But there's a snake seeking to thwart God's creational plan. Christians, for us too, we're part of a new creation. We talked about this at length in 1 Peter. We are exiles called to be a new people, a new kingdom in this world. And our duty is to fulfill God's call to us in the creation mandates to Adam and Eve, but also in the Great Commission, which is an extension of that. God calls his people always into a new creation. But we have an enemy. And what he really wants for us to do is to give up and to give in. He wants us to stop fulfilling our calling as the church. He wants us to stop fulfilling our calling as God's people, as the holy nation. And he does it in two ways. Let's look at that. Second, God calls his people to battle the serpent. From the very beginning of creation... Man's work has come under broadly two categories. We call these creation ordinances. First, there's the call to work and to rest in a cycle of of six and one. That's the have dominion and subdue part. 
And second, there's the call to multiply through marriage and children. That's the be fruitful and multiply part. Well, the devil knows this. Satan knows this. And Pharaoh's two oppressions are attacking these two mandates that God has given us. First, Pharaoh oppresses oppresses Israel in its work. And then second, Pharaoh oppresses them in their multiplication. So let's consider each of those. God calls his people to battle the old serpent in their work and in their rest. Look at verse 11. Moses, uh, the Pharaoh, wants to deal shrewdly with these people, and so they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses, but the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel, so they ruthlessly made them made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service. So Pharaoh's first line of attack, the first thing that he does is to put the people of Israel under a heavy workload. Just to kind of set the context for you, let me give you a, a couple of historical notes. When Israel first settled in Egypt, they were given the land of Goshen. Now, Goshen is basically on the east side of the Nile Delta, right by Sinai. It's, it's really lush and fertile land. And it's, it's actually kind of at the edge of where the Egyptians lived. And so for, for most of the time that the Israelites were in Egypt, they were probably pretty much left to their own devices. They were, they were able to worship God freely. They were able to, to live a life of work and Sabbath in that six-in-one cycle. And they were able to, to tend to their own land without much interference. So in a lot of ways, Pharaoh's oppression is tantamount to an invasion. He's invading the land of Goshen and enslaving these people. Notice how strong the language is here. The burdens laid on the Israelites are heavy. They're ruthless. They're bitter. And Pharaoh has them build these two cities, Pithom and and Ramses. These, These two cities were in the middle of the land of Goshen, right in the middle of where the Israelites lived, right in the middle of their land. But not only that, these cities are dedicated to Egyptian gods. Pithom means the house of Atum, who is the primordial creator god, in direct contradiction to Yahweh. Ramses means the son of Ra. Ra was the sun god, and Pharaoh was believed to have descended from him. And so not only have the Egyptians invaded, not only have the Egyptians placed the people under hard labor, they're also forcing them to build idolatrous temples. In modern terms, this is analogous to what, what it would be like if Islamic terrorists took us over, banned Christianity, and forced us to build mosques. That's the level of oppression we're talking about. But what happens? Verse 12, the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied. How many of you know what that's like? Now, I had to, I had to call my mom uh, yesterday to confirm this story. But when I was growing up, we had, they're called iron plants. Do we know what those are? Iron plants, or maybe they're called barroom plants in some places. But they're these, like, leaves, and it's a ground cover plant. And my mom just really hated these things. So I remember most of my childhood, she would spend days pulling these things up, trying to get the roots up, trying to cut them down. The thing that works the best eventually is we poured diesel in a bunch of them, but they still, they still wouldn't go away. The more that we cut them down, the more that we tried to dig them up, they would just come back. 
You probably, if you have a garden, if you have a flower bed, you probably have a, a similar experience of these, these weeds that just won't go away. The more we pull them up, the more they come back. And if, you have, if you've had that experience, you, you have a sense of what it was like to be Pharaoh. He's being overwhelmed. He's being covered up. The Israelites are growing like weeds underneath his feet. And no matter what he does, they keep multiplying. And in fact, the harder he presses, the more he tries to, to press them down, the more they grow. Again, we talked about that extensively in 1 Peter. Suffering and oppression only strengthens God's people. So what does this have to do with you? Well, just as Pharaoh piled up labors on the Israelites, Satan wants to pile up labors on God's people today. Now, this can take on several different forms. On an earthly level, that may look like just actual work. The prevailing culture is obsessed with productivity. We want to be the best in our field. We want to have nice houses. We want to have nice cars. We want our kids to have nice houses and cars. And so we put pressure on them to perform. Satan wants you to believe that these things are so urgent that rest is impossible. And as a result, perhaps the most neglected of the Ten Commandments is the fourth. Remember the Sabbath. Now, ironically, the the best way to fight that impulse, to ceaseless activity, the impulse to work forever, is to obey the fourth commandment. To stop one day in seven, to set aside our labors and to rest. And first and foremost, that rest includes worshiping with God's people. But that's just the earthly dimension. There's also a spiritual dimension. Satan is called the accuser. And he accuses us with our own sinful works. He wants to oppress us with guilt and shame. And he wants to convince us that the way to get rid of our guilt, the way to get rid of our shame is to offset it with good works. Satan says, come unto me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you five steps to being a better person. I'll give you another weekly meeting with a therapist or a small group. I'll give you the perfect morning routine. I'll give you books on parenting. I'll give you books on dieting and business. I'll give you more duties, more laws to follow, more burdens to bear. But what does Jesus say? He says, come unto me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Are you burdened by your sin? Have your own righteousness, have your own works failed you? Turn to Jesus, place your faith in him. And he will actually free you from that burden. Satan can pile on works. He can pile on labors all he wants. But with every extra pound, Jesus lifts us up even more in grace. As Paul reminds us, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. And as Satan seeks to lay the curse heavy upon us, Jesus frees us from our own works and offers us abiding Sabbath rest. God calls his people to battle the old serpent in their work and in their rest. Next, God calls his people to battle the old serpent in their families. Look at verse 15. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Pua, when you serve as a midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. Now, one thing historically that we have not talked about yet is the identity of Pharaoh. Who is this guy that's the king? 
you know, we have a lot of data historically on all these various dynasties in Egypt. In fact, a lot of ancient um, history is, is kind of keyed to the Egyptian history because they kept such good records. And so it's, it's a little bit odd that Moses doesn't include Pharaoh's name. If you pick up any commentary in the book of Exodus, there's going to be like a chapter-long discussion of who the Pharaoh is. Two most common names are Ramses II and Tutmos III. And I have an opinion on that as well, along with other commentators. But at the end of the day, those are all just guesses. The fact is that Moses did not want us to know the name of Pharaoh. Almost certainly, Pharaoh's name is left out intentionally. And that is a scandalous dishonor to the king of the world at the time. He's the most powerful man on the planet at the time that Moses is writing this, at the time that this is going on. His name had force, his name had power, but Moses robs him of all of that. Instead, he gives us two other names, Shifra and Puah. These are the two Hebrew midwives. The fact that they were midwives is an indication that they were either unmarried, barren, or both. In terms of social status, they have none. But Moses gives us their names because of their righteous actions. So let's see what they did. Look at verse 17. It says, But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this? Let the male children live. The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives. And the people multiplied and grew very strong. Because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. So remember, Pharaoh, most powerful man in the world. He has armies, he has wealth, he has strength. When that man says someone is supposed to die, they die. If anyone is to be feared, it's him. But Shifra and Puah are not afraid. They fear God. Instead of doing Pharaoh's word, they do God's word. So what we have in this second oppression is Satan's attack on the second creation ordinance, marriage and family. He tried to stop them by taking away their rest, by afflicting them with their work, but that strategy failed. So he decides to take things to another level. If you kill off a generation of males, you destroy the whole of Israel. When the girls grow up, They'll be forced to intermarry, and you can still have your labor force, but there will be no military force, no distinctive people of Israel to rise up against Pharaoh. And that's his goal. Now, there's, there's one interesting question that we need to address that arises from this passage. What the midwives tell Pharaoh, that the Hebrew women are vigorous and they give birth before the midwives get there. That may have a kernel of truth in it, but it is certainly not the whole truth. And so many have come away from this passage wondering whether or not lying is actually rewarded here. And the short answer is yes. In the same way that killing may sometimes be allowable, like with war or capital punishment, lying is allowed in extraordinary circumstances. So the answer to the age-old problem, you've heard this problem before, if the axe murderer comes to your house and asks where your family is, you can lie to them. That's allowed. And in fact, this lie that Shifra and Pua told probably allowed the midwives to save many other lives. 
including the life of the baby Moses, who would come shortly afterward. So in, in saving these boys, Shifra and Pua are instrumental in bringing about more multiplication and more growth. And once again, the harder Pharaoh presses, the more the people multiply. But there's also a grand irony here, because the midwives also conceive and bear children. These are women who are not supposed to have children. But because they are faithful, God grants them families. The barren women have children. Does that sound familiar? But this is an example of the abounding, overflowing multiplication and fruitfulness that God gives the people of Israel. And the more Pharaoh presses, the more this expands. But Pharaoh's got one more move. Look at verse 22. It says, Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast in the Nile. You shall let every daughter live. Now, how do you think that's going to work out for him? Throughout the Bible, Satan's greatest enemies, besides Jesus, are all women. Because Satan first deceived Eve, God in his special providence has determined to use women to carry out his attacks on the devil. We'll see that next week. When three different women are involved in saving Moses' life. And we'll see that as we read Luke with Elizabeth and Mary. But let's look at how this applies to us. The first thing you should know is that the devil still attacks the family today. There are obvious things that I think we all know about. So-called gay marriage has been forced on us since the Obergefell ruling in 2014. Just to give you some points of reference on that, in 1996, the Defense of Marriage Act, defining marriage as a union between one man and one woman, was made law. And it passed Congress with the support of all Republicans and the vast majority of Democrats, including then-Senator Joe Biden. In 2022, that was repealed for the, quote, Respect of Marriage Act, and it passed Congress with the support of all Democrats and a large number of Republicans. Last year, we were blessed with the overturning of Roe versus Wade, but that battle is still not over. Mississippi has banned abortion. But in most states, late-term abortion is still the norm. But you may say that's the way of the world. The church doesn't support those things. That's other places. What if I told you that among evangelical Protestants, 28% support same-sex marriage and 33% support the legalization of abortion in all of most cases? The spirit of Pharaoh is alive and well in our nation. And we are buying what that spirit is selling. That this stuff doesn't matter. That marriage, that children don't matter. That it's all just kind of made up anyway. That it's for our own benefit, not for the benefit of the world, not for for any command that God has given us. It's just for self-fulfillment. Satan wants to break apart the family. He hates marriage and he hates children. What can we do about that? Well, it's really quite simple. Christians that are called to it should get married and have children. If you're not called to that, if circumstances have prevented you from doing that, or if you've already done that and you're, you're, you're past that stage in life, support those that are in it right now. When we baptize our children, there are vows that we take to care for and support those children. So fulfill your vows. The most common way the church grows is through the birth of covenant children. The command to be fruitful and multiply still applies to us today. But there's also a bigger picture. The creation mandate foreshadows and points to the Great Commission. In Revelation 12, the church is pictured as a woman. 
This woman is the bride of Christ. And she's bearing children. And in the church, we have physical children, of course, but we're also blessed with spiritual children. As the church, as Christ's bride, we are called to be fruitful and multiply with evangelism and addition to procreation. And Satan hates that too. In the same chapter, in Revelation 12, Satan is cast down from heaven and he makes war with the woman and his offspring. So Christian, you are at war with the devil. He wants to cut you down. He wants to destroy you. But God has promised salvation. And even as Satan seeks to steal your life, Christ seeks to steal his. After the fall in Genesis 3, God hands out curses to the man, he says, curses the ground because of you. And pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. Work and rest, cursed. To the woman, he says, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, and he shall rule over. He shall rule over you. Marriage and family, cursed. Satan loves to remind us of these curses. He loves to bring to mind our failures in these areas. He wants us frustrated. He wants us struggling. But most of all, he wants us to forget the curse laid on him. To the serpent, God says. Because, of the, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So friends, as we enter into a time of Advent, we remember the first coming of the seed of the woman. Jesus Christ was born of Mary to fulfill this promise. He was born among us to die on the cross, to have his heel bitten. But as he cried, it is finished. He was promising to crush the serpent's head. So Advent is a time when we look forward to the return of Christ, when the serpent's head will be crushed once and for all. We look forward to the day when all oppression will cease. And in Christ, we can pray the words that we sang at the beginning of worship. Come, thou rod of Jesse, free thine own from Satan's tyranny. From depths of hell, thy people save, and give them victory o'er the grave. Christ has died, Christ has risen, and Christ will come again. So let us rejoice in him. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.